Welcome to Al Bernstein Unplugged Unboxing. In a 40-year Hall of Fame career, Al has chronicled some of the greatest moments in boxing history. On this podcast, you get to hear him expand on those memories and talk about the current news in the sport of boxing. You also hear Al interview some of the biggest names in the sport. Here's Al Bernstein Unplugged. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our show. On this one, we're going to have a slightly different format. Uh, we are guestless, and that's kind of by design. We decided that we were getting so many questions from all of you, uh, sending us questions on Twitter, at Al Bernstein, my handle, that we wanted to dig into as many of those questions as we could. Uh, we don't always get to all of them. And so on this show, in addition to Tripp and I chatting a little bit about boxing, we're going to... Uh, answer a lot of your questions. And uh, the gentleman I just alluded to is my friend, cohort, and co-host, Trip Mitchell. Trip, how are you doing today? I am doing great and uh, so excited about uh, you and, and the whole Showtime crew doing the fight a little while ago. And you did a twin pay-per-view, which has never been done before. You were on the air for, what, six hours? That's incredible. Yes, we, yeah, it was. I, at some point on the broadcast, I wanted to say, okay, Ed McMahon, let's take a look at the tote board. Um, <laughs> and for our younger viewers, that's a reference to the Jerry Lewis telethon for <laughs> MDS that he used to do. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was, it was a long stretch, I have to say, but it was fun. We had a good time and the boxing was, was good. And uh, it was an interesting, uh, interesting evening for sure. Well, in the reviews of the fights themselves, the Charlo brothers are getting great great PR right now. Well, not PR, but just commentary on their boxing, yeah. how strong they are. Have you ever seen another pair of brothers like this? Who, who would there, you bring up? Yeah, there have been other brothers. The Galaxy Twins, K.O. Galaxy and his brother, he was a great, uh, uh, I think, featherweight champion in the, many, many years ago from the Philippines. And uh, there have been other brothers that have been champions. Um, the, and the Galaxy Twins twin, were twins as the Charlos are twins. And there have been brother combinations that have been good in boxing, not so much both champions, but the Charlos are, are starting to really gain traction. You know, they wanted to deliver good performances and they did. You know, the, the uh, Jamal Charlo fight with Sergei uh, Derevianchenko was really an excellent performance by him. Not so much that just that he won, but the way he won. Derevianchenko had good moments in this fight. You know, he, he won, in my opinion, he won four rounds in this fight. It's one of the scorecards, two of the scorecards added a little wider. Uh, our own unofficial score, Steve Farad added 116-112. That's where I would go for this fight. There were, clearly were, were four rounds where Derevianchenko won. And at, when that fight ended, Sergey was attacking Jamal Charlo and having good success. So, you know, he took on a tough fighter and rightfully got a tough fight. But for the most part, he controlled the action. He landed big power punches. It's astonishing to me on a couple of occasions from those right uppercuts that he was showing that Dervianchenko did not go down. That was amazing to me and shows his toughness. Uh, and so for him, unfortunately, now his third chance at missing out on the middleweight championship. But for Jamal Charlo, cementing his place as an excellent fighter. And for Jamal, the performance was even more uh, dominant uh, against Jason Rosario, who himself had two of the 154-pound belts. And Jamal Charlo knocked him down in the very first seconds of the fight with kind of a wild left hook, which scored another knockdown. And then 
ended the fight with, of all things, a jab to the solar plexus. And it, he took the wind out of uh, Rosario completely. And he did not beat the count. And in fact, even went to the hospital for uh, observation. But he's fine now. He went back to the Dominican Republic. And he's, he's doing well, which we're all happy about. But it was, they provided the kind of dominant performances that they wanted to, uh, to kind of cement their place as uh, important players on the boxing landscape. Where would, which division is stronger to you, junior middleweight or middleweight right now? I like, oh, I think junior middleweight is stronger. You know, it, it, it has a plethora of good fighters. Uh, there's uh, um, Jamel Charlo, of course, uh, uh, J-Rock Williams, uh, Erickson Lubin, Jared Hurd, Arislandi Lara, Brian Castaño, uh, uh, Texera, the, the WBO champion who's pretty good. Uh, and I think in terms of, and plus Rosario, who we still can't count out of the, the picture, uh, there are a lot of good 154 pounders. So I think that division probably is, is up there. The other division that's great is one that we featured uh, on the, the pay-per-view, the 122-pound division, where Danny Roman won, although I thought it was a much closer fight than the judges felt. Uh, and he is going to likely get a title shot again. He was the former unified champion of that division. Louis Natty, who came in with a reputation as a giant knockout artist with 11 straight knockouts in a row, couldn't get a knockout against uh, Aaron Alameda, but did win the fight. Um, he could either fight Roman or he might fight Brandon Figueroa, who was had a great fight against Damian Vasquez. Vasquez fought the fight of his life, a young 23-year-old who came in a big underdog. He fought really well for about six rounds. And then uh, the aggressiveness of Figueroa, who throws over 100 punches around, really took over. Okay. Well, as mentioned, we have gotten some great questions. And today's show is, I'm excited because we get to ask a lot of them. A lot of them. And some of them, not the easiest ones. No, no, they're... There was a little hostility on, you know, so. You know, I could, there's a little edginess on uh, these days among boxing <laughs> fans on Twitter. So we will meet it head on, not necessarily directed at me, but just in general. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll do our best to deal with it. Okay. This one comes from Adrian. No, this is not from Adrian Broner. Excuse me. This comes from PDS. How would you rate Jamal to do against the 90s middleweights like Tony Julian Jackson or Gerald McClellan? Well, that, that was a fascinating question. You know, that middleweight era uh, was a great one. And I announced a lot of James Tony fights. James Tony at his absolute best would be an interesting and little bit difficult matchup for Jamal Charlo uh, because he, he's so good defensively. But if Charlo stayed on the outside against him, as he did against Derevianchenko, uh, and didn't attack overcommit. He could actually win that fight staying on the outside, I believe. Uh, but it would be a very tough fight. That one is a really, that's a pick em fight to me. Uh, I think James Tony is overall, at his very best, when he's totally in shape, is one of the best fighters of the last 50 years. Um, but there's a certain stylistic element to that fight that I think kind of helps Charlo a little bit and makes it a more even fight than it might be. So that one uh, would be uh, difficult. Julian Jackson, I think, would have a problem against Charlo because Charlo has an amazing chin. And Julian Jackson was a big puncher, but he was also susceptible to big punchers. 
And so I think I would lean toward um, Charlo in that fight. Jerome McClellan is an intriguing uh, one because he would, he would do what uh, Derevyanchenko did in parts of the fight. That is get inside and work the body of, of Jamal Charlo. If Jerome, if if he didn't get knocked out early in the fight, uh, you know he might he might have done some good things against him. And then there was also, um, yeah. So you know, I think I think those are fighters that that uh, would make for great matches with Jamal Charlo. Well, fantastic, and uh, you know it it it's fun when you go from eras because again that's makes your job a lot more interesting because there's no right or wrong on that. But having seen all these boxers and called all these fights, you're one of the best guys to get this information. Next question. We hope. (laughs) Graham Buckle. What do you think of Tim Tzu from down here in Australia? Yeah, that's uh, the son of Costa Zoo, um, who, of course, I announced Costa Zoo's last fight when he fought Ricky Hatton. Uh, and lost to Ricky Hatton in Manchester, uh, England. Uh, it, that was an extraordinary night on every level. Uh, but of course, most of Costas's career was a successful one. He was one of the best. He's a Hall of Famer and one of the best 140 pounders that ever lived. His son Tim making his way uh, as a fighter, and I think Tim Zhu is going to be a really, really good fighter. I think he's on the verge of contention. And I believe is going to be fighting contenders very shortly. So I think he's going to have an excellent career. And it must be fun for you to, to see the next generation come along. And that happens a lot in boxing. It does. Right? Yeah, it really does. And in fact, we see it happening in so many different sports, right? In the NBA and baseball, baseball, especially for some reason, it's, it's just a, uh, you know, a regular happening. And, uh, and it is fun to see uh, a next generation come. It also reminds you how old you are, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's Thanks, the bad Al, part. for noticing the, the downside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, this is the question that a little, had a little edge to it from Corey. Why do commentators feel it's necessary to have to speak every second of the fight? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a fair question. You know, there are some elements to that. I mean... I try not to do that, but here's the point. Even if I try not to do that, most broadcast uh, groups are now three-man booths. That adds to that situation because you have three people there who, even if they lay out, when they speak, they're going to, that's part of the round where you're hearing a voice. So it's not always about announcers being verbose it's about how many of them are doing the telecast. However, I would agree with Corey. We live in an age where sportscasters talk too much. It's a fact. Uh, on, every, on every sport, every single sport. Um, one time I was doing a fight uh, years ago, and uh, I won't mention the broadcaster, but he was a play-by-play person who literally was filling up every second. And uh, the producer of the, of the show uh, made this caustic comment to him. He said, could you give natural sound a chance? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, 
and and that's what Corey's saying. Give natural sound a chance. And I, I really agree with him. And you, we do our best to try and monitor ourselves on our broadcast. Um, sometimes we succeed more often. Sometimes we fail. Um, but it has become a norm in sports where, and part of the problem too is that people have conversations. And if you're having a conversation, you're always talking. Now, we don't do that so much on our show. We, we, we don't have a lot of conversation. There is byplay between us, but we don't, we're not going to sit there and discuss the 154-pound division while the fight's happening. Uh, some people do that in basketball, uh, football, baseball. Uh, it's the norm now. So I, I'm with Corey, though, and I, and, uh, you know, I, I want to be part of the solution, not the problem. Uh, I try to be, but uh, it's, it's an issue. So during the fights during the pandemic with no crowd versus having a big crowd, is it more important in your opinion to talk less with no crowd or talk less with a crowd? That's a very good question. And Mauro even alluded to the fact that at some point during the broadcast, he said, you know, and we paused for a little bit uh, and he paused. Uh, he said, you can hear the punches, uh, which you can. You literally can hear the punches. Uh, I, the temptation is probably to talk more because you don't have the crowd as an element. So when you are, when natural sound is happening, usually it's partially the crowd and partially other things, which makes it more interesting than the kind of silence you have uh, now other than those punches landing. So it does place a challenge on broadcasters not to talk all the time. Yeah, and just on a personal level, when you watch uh, basketball now with the crowd noise and hockey with the crowd noise, does it seem fake to you? Would you rather not? No, have I don't, it? I actually don't mind it. I don't know how you feel. It doesn't bother me. They, they kind of stick it in underneath a little bit. Um, I know it's canned, but, and yet after a while I forget it's canned. So I don't know. Does it bother you? It does. And it just, yeah, yeah, I, I could it, see it going either way. Yeah. The guy with this keyboard, you know, playing the yeah, sound, yeah. <laughs> but deciding <laughs> what's exciting and what's not, I, I get that both ways. Yeah. And we don't think that boxing is going to get to the point where we have canned audience, I hope. Well, I think there is on Fox, if I'm not mistaken, they they may have put some sound in. I can't remember. Okay. I, I should know that, but I, I can't remember. Well, Showtime is authentic. That's what we want to mention. <laughs> well, we're trying to be. <laughs> okay. This comes from Fight Fan. What's next for Jer Jermel Charlo? Yeah, here's uh, so Erickson Lubin on our, on August 19th or uh, September 19th uh, on our Showtime Championship Boxing beat Terrell Gachet. Uh, so as in a mandatory uh, title um, uh, elimination fight in which the winner would fight the WBC champion, which could have been either Rosario or Charlo, depending on who won. And of course, Charlo did so. If, if uh, Jamel Charlo wants to keep the WBC title, he now also owns the WBA and IBF title, he would have to fight Erickson Lubin. Now, he has beaten Erickson Lubin already. He knocked him out in one round uh, a, you know, a few years ago. Erickson Lubin has since matured, and he feels he's ready for a rematch with Charlo. So that is one fight that's open to him. Uh, the 154-pound the, the, uh, division has a number of different uh, options for him. I mentioned a lot of the fighters uh, before. And uh, Patrick Teixeira is the WBO champ. He might want to try and unify and get all of the titles. By the way, 
now with the TV networks controlling different fighters, is there a solution for that? Because, you know, for instance, the Charlos now, both brothers might be top 10 pound for pound, but there's a lot of great fighters that they might not see because the other fighters are on different networks. How do you get past that? Well, yeah, for, for um, Jermel, it's less of a problem because of the promotional thing, even though they, they, have, they have fought on both Fox and, uh, and Showtime, both of them. But the, those networks get their source of their boxing from premier boxing champions. For Jermel Charlo, most of the, almost all of the 154 pounders are within the PBC family. That's why he was able to, he's been able to fight more of the contenders than Jamal Charlo has because a lot of the middleweight uh, Canelo is off on the zone and with uh, with go uh, well not we don't know what promoter he's with now depending on the lawsuit that he has. Uh, <laughs> But, um, you know, and, and Golovkin's off with uh, different, uh, with his own, uh, and uh, Dennis Andrade is, or Demetrius Andrade is over there. And so uh, for Jermall Charlo, that's an issue. Uh, I think boxing, is, you know, some of those have become, started to be solved with uh, Bob Arum and the ESPN folks making a combined pay-per-views with Fox. And um, you can do it more on the pay-per-view uh, level. If you have a fight that's on a pay-per-view level, it's a little tougher, though it's been done with the f with fights that are less than pay-per-view. But we're all hoping that that can be conquered a little more in boxing. We're seeing some signs of chipping away at that. That's fantastic because it used to be promoter. You know, promoters caused a lot of headaches and wanted to keep all the money for themselves. And now boxing can certainly use some great matchups. Well, and you know, back in the 80s when everybody was fighting on uh, over-the-air networks, nobody had an exclusive with the network. Uh, you'd see, you'd see uh, some fighter on CBS, but then nine months later, you'd see them on the ABC Wide World of Sports. Uh, and then maybe two years later, you'd see them on NBC. So the networks weren't, you know, involved. I think, to be perfectly candid, when the premium networks, HBO and Showtime, got involved, the, uh, the, the promoters made more, uh, they did more uh, exclusivity with certain networks. Yeah. And just this is a little inside, but why do you think HBO got out of boxing? Uh, I think it was part, uh, the, their source of material was kind of, of um, you know, of fights was drying up a little bit. And I think they didn't have places to go for their product as much as they wanted. It just turned out other, some of the, the promoters had gone with other networks and pretty soon, whether it was due to them not quite planning properly or just a quirk of fate and a circumstance they couldn't control, they were ending up with a situation where they weren't gonna have the kind of product that they would want to make their subscribers happy with their boxing. And you know, in premium networks, it's about whether you're, you know, when they do all those subscriber, um, uh, you know, uh, surveys. Okay, questionnaire, sure, that, yeah. That's when, questionnaires and surveys, that's when, if people keep telling you, I like the boxing, then you keep having the boxing. If all those people tell you they don't, then you're tempted not to have it. Now, I don't think that happened at HBO, but I think what happened, and this is just from my outside knowledge of it, uh, I think it was partially the the uh, the lack of product that wasn't it wasn't available to them.
And so you, but you were able to be on HBO for the Mayweather-Pacquiao fight. So, you know, you had your one uh, Well, time I worked with HBO broadcasters. Yeah, and yeah, I was on there. Although you wouldn't have known the way I was introduced, but that's another question. <laughs> <laughs> I, won't, I won't get into that, but the way the, way, the, way the introduction went on the actual uh, HBO portion of the broadcast was not shared of me. It wasn't shared with the same enthusiasm and grace that we uh, extended to our colleagues on, uh, on HBO. That's another So did you think you were in the witness protection program at that yeah, point? Yeah, it was. A little bit like that, but uh, so, but that's okay. But I was on there, and I've been on HBO some other time. So, I'll, you know, I'm 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 happy with that. Okay, that sounds great. Um, Kevin McIntyre with a quick question: Watch the fantastic doc uh, documentary that is on Sonny Liston. Just curious about what your thoughts about this poor guy's life. Yeah, Sonny Liston, you know, had a hard scramble life that included a stint in prison. Uh, and some difficulties, you know, along the way. He was able to rise to become heavyweight champion. Even that was not easy. Uh, he was frozen out by uh, the people around Floyd Patterson from getting his opportunity. Uh, once he did, of course, he twice knocked out Patterson, became champion, and then uh, lost to Muhammad Ali uh, twice. And... Uh, also, there, of course, there are the Sonny Liston mob connections. There are his drug issues. Uh, and there are many, many years ago, in the early 80s, I wanted to write a book about Sonny Liston. And I used to have lunch. Uh, every time we did our way in, I would have a breakfast slash lunch with some of the old timers in, in Vegas. Mel Grabu is a great a matchmaker, Bob Martin, a great um, handicapper, Jack France, also a, 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 a handicapper. Um, and by the way, I thought these guys were having lunch with me because I was, you know, a young guy on uh, announcing the fights, and they enjoyed my 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 uh, company. And maybe and maybe that was part of it. But I'm pretty sure now that Jack Jack and uh, Bill Bob Martin we're really just kind of picking my brain to see who they should bet on, on the ESPN fight. So <laughs> I, in, <laughs> in retrospect, knowledge. I'm not sure it was my sparkling personality that they wanted. <laughs> who so. bought lunch? That's the question. Who yeah. paid for it? Anyway, when I used to have uh, 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 lunches with them, I mentioned at one point that I, and they kind of started to, you know, they, they liked me and they were, they were kind of Dutch uncles to me. And, I mentioned that I wanted to do the book on Sonny Liston, and I'll never forget uh, Mel Greb reaching his hand over to me and putting his hand on my, you know, right here on my, on my arm and saying, no, don't do that. And I said, why, why, why do you think? He said, don't do it. It's too early for you to do it. Too many people are still alive, and you don't want to try and write that book right now. And I took that. And, and Bob Martin and Jack Frenzy told me exactly the same thing. I didn't write the book. And there have been, you know, now things written and done about him. But their, their point was there were too many people alive that wouldn't want you, things written about him. And if, and if you accidentally did too good a job of researching that book, you'd be in trouble. And, and um, So Sonny Liston, you know, it was a troubled life. And, uh, you know, he... Uh, it was he reached the, the the top of the heavyweight division, but it was a struggle, and it, and his reign as 
Titleist did not last long. So these guys were implying that the people that were still alive were not necessarily garden club members? Right. And uh, once you got to the death of Sonny Liston, yeah, you, would, you might hear from them in a way that you didn't want to hear from them. So, you know, you, uh, in your book, by the way, we haven't done a plug for it lately, but uh, wonderful book, 30 Years, 30 Undeniable Truths About Boxing, Sports, and TV. And you have more great stories in there about fighters. And, uh, but speaking of, of running into people you don't want to, you have told this story before, but I love it. The gentleman in Cape Cod Coliseum who stood up next to you at the urinal. Can we do that one yeah. more time? Yeah, yeah, that was that was a crazy uh, story. What the, what had preceded it was that there had been a blackout in the in the uh, at the fight, um, which some people thought might have been dubious that uh, maybe the one of the local promoter caused the blackout because his fighter wasn't doing well, uh, and. So when the lights came back on, people were fighting and they, you know, a lot of them had consumed quite a bit of alcohol and it was crazy. And I went into, after the show was over, I went into the uh, bathroom there. I was standing at a urinal and a gentleman comes in dressed all in black leather with chains. And uh, he comes uh, next to me, kind of looked like an Italian mobster of some kind, right? Or would be Italian mobster. And reached into his pocket and picked pulled a very big handgun out and put it right on top of the urinal. Oh, and he went to the urinal right next to me, even though there were other urinals available. That, that's always a no-no. <laughs> yeah. When I, when I saw him pull the gun out and put it on the top, I looked down and I was somewhat startled. And he looked over at me and said, so uh, what did you think of the fight? <laughs> and I said, what would you like me to think of the fight? Um, <laughs> <laughs> he started laughing, right? And, uh, you know, I kind of, we had a brief, very brief conversation. I was hoping to get away from the urinal as soon as possible, but I was kind of in the middle of doing my business and I couldn't. He finished before me, strangely enough. He took the gun and then I was done and he, and he put it back in his pocket. And he's, as he's walking out, he said to me now, he said, uh, be careful out there. There's a lot of crazy guys out there. <laughs> and, he and I wanted to say, you know what? You're a little late with that. Uh, that warning. So yeah, that was that was one of the nutty things. And yes, I do tell that story in my book. Uh, so I, I, I think there are some stories I missed. And I'm, I'm seriously thinking now of uh, doing part two. We'll make it 40 years and 40 in the novel truths. Okay, perfect. And we joke with Wes before we go on the air that Wes was 11 when you talk about him in the book. And now he's 21 years old. So right. Yeah. So it's been a while. That's right. He was, uh, he was uh, an 11 or yeah, he was 11 or 12 years old. And he was uh, um, a, a very different, uh, very different guy than he is now. Now he's a, almost a grown man. Well, and you, you've talked about when you were inducted in the Boxing Hall of Fame back in New York that Wes had a chance to meet Marvin Hagler, Sugar oh, yeah. Ray, all these and Tommy Hearns and just love Right. Him. Well, the interesting thing was Wes was not, and still is not, you know, a major boxing fan or sports fan. He's, uh, he's, as some people know, he's a very talented singer songwriter and, and, uh, and the arts are more his thing. And as I pointed out, if you mention the word Oscar to him, he thinks Academy Award, not De La Hoya. Uh, and uh, back then, so he, and he, and back then he was already doing acting. He had been acting, he had, in, in, in theater and in other other venues. 
And we were going to go to the Hall of Fame. And I said to him, I said, you know, I said, you're going to meet a lot of people. Oh, and we'd been to another Hall of Fame that I was inducted in. And he came with us. And one of the former ex-champions, I think it was Bone Crusher Smith, looked at him and said, hey, show me your stance. <laughs> well, he had no stance, of course. But just by seeing what boxers done, he kind of came into a boxing stance. And I was really impressed. I was like, I didn't even know you ever saw a boxer. And I said, that was a very good performance. And he said, yeah, he said, I'm an actor. So <laughs> when we were going to uh, the, the Hall of Fame, I said, you're going to meet a lot of people. I said, you know, I said, I just want to tell you, some of these people are really, really famous, even though you might not know about them. Well, sure enough, we, in the hotel, we were saying there's Tommy Hearns and Marvin Hagler and Sugar Ray Leonard were all on the same floor. And they, uh, in this little tiny, they put you in this tiny little, uh, uh, in Canastota, uh, a little, it's like a Motel 6. It really is a small little thing. And so you're, you're always around the people that you're, you're, you're seeing. And then there's a little hospitality suite uh, there also. And so he was rubbing elbows with and got to be like friends with Tommy Hearns and Marvin Hagler and Sugar Ray Leonard. And they were also friendly with him and they had fun with him. And he, is a, he had a really nice fun personality, which he still does. And so he was, he was great with them. And uh, at one point I said to him, I said, you know, those guys that you're, you know, he, oh, once he's, he said to me at one point, he said, man, he said, those are nice guys. I really like them. I said, do you know at all who they are? He said, no, I know they were famous, right? I said, yeah. I said, there's about, <laughs> there's about 10 million, you know, 13 year olds out there um, who would really love to be who you are right now, <laughs> hanging out with them. So he, uh, but he, but he had, he had fun with uncle Marvin and uncle Tommy and uncle uh, Ray. That's perfect. And, and by the way, because Wes is going into the music business, tell him to keep, remember that stance because, you know, every once in a while, a quick poke in the head to a promoter or a record company guy, makes life better, I think. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, right. That's right. I mean, and I'll remind him, use the jab. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Perfect. And then Apple Secure with a question. Here's one. How come you recycle names that lost to someone with a big name in boxing as if the loss makes them great? Boxing stats are void. Stop with the pound for pound arguments fighting twice a year. Told you, fakes. So this is the one that that's out there a little, um, uh, had a little edge on it. Yeah, when well, he also mentioned fighters in there, I think, didn't he put Dervianchenko and uh, Gamboa, Jeff Horn, Kelly Brook, Horn, and, and yeah, and and I pointed, I actually sent a tweet back, and then I said I was going to answer it on here. the The thing is, of course, to some degree, some of what he's written there is accurate. Sometimes people get recycled as opponents when they shouldn't, but you can't lump them all together like Sergey Dervianchenko. It was perfectly good to have him fight, uh, I think, to fight uh, Charlo. He had lost by split decision twice to, for the middleweight championship and showed us in the Charlo fight that he's still a, a very good fighter. I doubt that he will ever win a world title at this juncture at age 34, but he really fought parts of that fight very well. Now, in the MMA, they are very conscious that somebody that loses a couple of fights should not be discarded. And oftentimes those people come back to make exciting fights. And that's where 
this gentleman is correct, but he's also partially wrong. If somebody makes exciting fights, they should be allowed to have several losses and still be put into to good fights. Uh, and that's what mixed martial arts has done. And that has helped them. Uh, you know, boxing become too reliant on the, having the O next to your name. He is right that sometimes in boxing, we do recycle. Uh, it's kind of like baseball managers, right? Or football coaches. Sometimes sure, they all fuddle. Same guys get hired, yeah. Right. They've, they've had losing records at three places, and now they still get another job. And, and some young coach that might do better doesn't get a chance. So there's truth in what he says, but we have to be very careful not to overreact and, uh, and generalize and say just because you have several losses, you can't still – fight for a tough. Now, Kell Brook is an interesting example. Many people believe Kell Brook is pretty much on the end of things. There are fighters that Kell Brooks can fight. They're talking about him fighting Bud Crawford. I don't know if Bud Crawford is somebody he can perform well against. That's a good question. There are other welterweights or, that he can, or 154 pounders. I just don't know if Bud Crawford is, the, is one of them. Yeah. And, uh, it's funny, just to follow up on that, in your book, you talked about a fighter who would go, he'd fight a couple, he was America's, you know, in the entertainment, you had America's guest on TV. This guy was America's opponent, where he would go anywhere, anytime, fight, change his name if he needed to. And, oh, yeah. Uh, and and was, those characters. And, yeah, that was Bruce DeMoss Strauss. He was, uh, he was an opponent, a, a, you know, a... Uh, official opponent that's what he did and he was just good enough where he could win he won like 50 percent of his fights you know which in boxing is not great but he and he and he didn't throw fights he just was overmatched frequently and he used to say his job was to make sure if you had a young prospect you bring me in if he can't beat me cut your losses because he should beat me and there were times when he'd beat those prospects because he was trying uh, there was a fight that I did for Sports Vision in Chicago, and Bruce was on it, and it was one of the ones he won. He, 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 he fought the entire match with his back against the ropes right above our broadcast uh, position. And I mean almost 100% of the fight. And he would counterpunch off the ropes, and, and he ended up winning this eight-round fight. And I said to him afterwards, I said, Bruce, I said, uh, Mouse, why, why did you fight in that one spot? He said, oh, Al, you know, I love you. He said, I wanted to hear your commentary. <laughs> a truer answer. Never yeah. been given in the sport. I'm like, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Have you ever had a, a situation where a fighter listens to you or maybe a trainer and they'll, you'll be harping on something during the round and then the trainer will tell the fighter to do what you said? Well, that's probably happened. I don't know. I doubt that they're hearing me, though, because, uh, you know, I, I think mostly you can't hear the announcer unless you're right near them. But it is possible. I don't know. And I don't know if I should take credit for that anyway. Uh, <laughs> I'm, not sure, I'm not sure my commentary is that insightful, but sometimes maybe it's helpful. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. Well, now and now, of course, in this current uh, situation, I don't know, but that they can't hear us commentating. I haven't gotten like complaints about that because that would be distracting. Because um, I know we can hear them, you know, better in the corners, and they have to they have to whisper a little bit more because across the way the other guy could maybe hear them talk if they're too loud. 
Yeah, it, uh, it'd be interesting to see. Things are different. But uh, uh, as usual, when you send out a request for questions, we get some great ones. Thanks to everyone. We did who, indeed. Are we, did, we, did, we, did we complete our, uh, our, our duties there? We did. All right. Very good. Um, yeah, so that was fun. I'm glad we got a chance to do that. Now, we will next week return uh, with a vengeance with a guest because we're going to have a great guest. Uh, Tiafimo Lopez is going to join us, and that will be during the preparation uh, week uh, of, for his fight with uh, Vasily uh, Lomachenko. And that, uh, of course, is a fight that we are all very, very much uh, looking forward to and very excited about. And, uh, and we'll get to talk to this young man who has just been a, um, uh, an exciting uh, and uh, often flamboyant fighter with great power. And uh, at a young age now, getting a chance to challenge what many believe is the best pound for pound fighter in the, uh, in the world today. So um, it's gonna be a lot of fun. Um, and uh, you and I will be here for it. Um, my thanks to Trip for his fine work on this uh, and Lee producing for uh, Let's Do Something Productions. And uh, we will see you next time.